Hello, you are listening to Val POC Plus, the program that uh, addresses issues of bias uh, among people of color mostly, but not always. Um, these are issues that affect uh, the United States as a whole, but we are specifically focusing on how these issues affect the Valparaiso, Indiana community school system in the high school, most specifically speaking. Um, I am Tim Leitsky. I am the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church, and I am one of your hosts, and I am, as always, the, the lesser half two. Hi, this is Noor Fien. I'm a senior at Valparaiso High School. And Noor and I are here with you recording at WVLP in Valparaiso, 103.1 FM. Um, we, our show is also available on anchor.fm slash V-A-L-P-O-C. Now you can find the podcasts there. And today we are talking about, um, broadly speaking, issues that, are, that affect um, Asian American Pacific Islander uh, students and, and folks who live in our community. And we are joined today um, by Pam Saylor. And I wonder if you could... Tell us all a little bit about who you are. Sure. Thank you, Tim and Noor, for inviting me to be with you this afternoon. Um, my name is Pam Saylor. I live here in Valparaiso, and I am uh, originally from the West Coast, the Bay Area, and moved here to Northwest Indiana with my three kids um, a while back. And so um, I am here as a community member someone that has raised um, biracial children in our community, and now I work um, and live in our Valparaiso area. So you mentioned raising biracial children, and that seems like a place to start because the racial breakdown in Valparaiso is, uh, we, we know that the overall racial breakdown is overwhelmingly white, but the younger, the younger you slice it, the, the, the more diverse it gets. It's still not really a, a, a good snapshot of the U.S., but it gets, starts to look more and more like that. Um, what can you, can you tell us about raising a bi biracial child in this, this setting? Sure. Um, we moved to um, a small community in northwest Indiana when my children were preschool through the fourth grade. And we moved to a small community here in Northwest Indiana where there were maybe under five um, students of color um, in the community that uh, looked like my kids. And so that was a challenge. Um, we moved out here because uh, of family. And so we, we wanted to raise our, our kids in the country. Um, so we, we chose this community in Northwest Indiana. So kind of a culture shock for me um, growing up in the Bay Area. I was born in Berkeley, California. Um, um, kind of a culture shock to move out here to the Midwest with my little kids. I had gone to preschool in San Francisco and then moving to this small community. And so I think it was, it was difficult for my kids um, growing up in this community. And I, I think I was a little naive um, that it would be this idyllic place in the country to raise your children. Um, and so that, that was kind of a culture shock for me. So it was a, I think it was difficult for my children growing up in this small community where there, there were not any children that looked like them or there weren't any teachers that looked like them, counselors, even neighbors, um, community members in this um, rural area that we lived in. So it was, it was difficult for my kids. Sure. We talk about this and you're not the first person that I've ever heard say it's difficult for us when nobody looks like we do. But what's, what exactly is it that's difficult about that? Um, what, what's, what is the effect that it has on, on you when nobody in authority looks like you do? I, I, think, I think for my, for my kids, I think they wanted to fit in to where, you know, to the community that we moved to. Um, probably even for me, I, I wanted to fit in. Um, getting to know community members that maybe never even met someone like me as a Filipina American. Um, I think that part was difficult because how do, how do I fit in into this tiny little mm -hmm. community? I'm trying to fit in. My kids are trying to fit in. It's that, that was the difficult part, I think. Um, 
you know, I, I, I'm the, I was that parent that volunteered for things in the schools. And so, you know, that everyone got to know me. But, I, but as an adult, that's easier for kids. How do you fit in? What, sure. what is that process like for kids that are second and fourth grade? That's really, really hard for them. I think it was helpful that I was that parent that was um, very active in the school. I volunteered and did things within the classroom. And so that probably helped me um, to be embraced by the community. But I, I know that for my kids, it was a di- that's a different it was kind of a different beast, I think. Yeah. Had your, had your kids lived in the Bay Area before coming here also? Yeah, they were born and raised in San Francisco. Okay, so the, the shock was, was not just for you coming here thinking, right? oh, this will be lovely, and right. oh, oh, wow, I'm right. really well, stick out like a sore thumb right. here. Part of it was we had the big earthquake, and we thought, you know what? We don't want to live in the city anymore. <laughs> let's move to the country. And uh, my husband's family was from this area. And we thought, you know, let's, let's look at places to live. So it was idyllic. Like, yes, we can do this. And I think my older children, um, especially my fourth grader, that was extremely difficult, um, living in such a diverse area and then moving to this very tiny community here in northwest Indiana. Yeah. I'm just processing what you said, Pam, about the differences between adjusting to, you know, being in the minority as an adult versus, you know, doing that as a child. I think even now I would approach it differently than I would have in middle school or elementary school. Right. Yeah. You don't have those skills, you know, as an adult, right. I had, I had those skills to navigate what that might look like, but my children were young, did not have those skills. And so I think that was difficult when, you know, you're called names because nobody looks like you. And who who is that kid, right? And that that was that was hard to. I think that was really hard for me to see because um, I wanted to be a strong advocate for my kids, and I wanted to be embraced by the community. So that right. is so hard. So you're trying to be embraced by the community. Your kids are getting getting made fun of as as kids do to each other, but they pick on. A, a, piece of you that that looks different than the rest of them do Um, what are what sorts of survival mechanisms did your kids come up with Um, um you know thinking about my daughter who was able to fit in she had a better it was a better process for her I think for her looking like everyone else you know I know as a teenager um when she was really figuring out who she was you know, the, the girls, the, the young girls at this time might, you know, lighten their hair or wear those light-colored contacts, right? So they look like everyone else because my kids were brunettes, right? Mm-hmm. But she'd wear those, those blue contacts. I thought, oh, you know, she would wear those blue contacts. I think my son was kind of a rebel. My older son was a rebel. And I think that because they were older, um, because they had... They had gone to school in San Francisco, this was a change for them. My youngest was preschool, so um, it was a lot easier for him, I think. But the older two, you know, one was a rebel and one was trying to fit in. When you talk about trying to fit in, you, you mentioned those blue contacts. I don't know that everybody listening knows what that is, necessarily. I don't. Could you tell us what you're I don't, you know what, I don't know, do they, do they do that anymore? Like, do yeah, they, they're just colored contacts. They're just colored contacts. Seem a different yeah, color. so that your eyes look like they're blue. Yeah, yeah. And, she, I mean, and just... she's a brunette, you know, but she was a high school kid, and she, I think, um, she had to be a certain age before she could buy, get contacts. So it's like, no, you're, you're going to wear glasses. You have to wear glasses. Right, and so she was a certain age, and so when she was going to get contacts, she thought, I, Mom, I want blue contacts. Like, okay, yeah, and, I, it, I, I knew what they were. But I hadn't figured it out. Ibram Kendi writes about it in, uh, in I think, Stamped from the Beginning. He talk, discusses, or maybe it's uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, but he talks about how he used to wear contacts to make him look less black, trying to fit in. And, and yes. looking back at that now, thinking, what on earth was I Yes, that's so desperate to, to right. look like everybody right. else that and, you'll and, actually do that. And, you know, I didn't, I, I probably, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, my daughter is older now and, you know, she's she's grown up and she's changed. And I and I see that and I hear those stories of her trying to fit in with her classmates who were mostly blonde, um, 
blue-eyed, right? What is that? What is that like for a little girl in the second, third, fourth, fifth grade? That's that can be hard when you don't when you don't look like everyone else. What do you, what do you do as a little girl yeah. to fit in? I don't think there is very much you can do as a little girl. I mean, personally, when I was in elementary school, I don't think I felt bad about being different. Um, I think I was okay with it, but it was still a very weird thing to grasp. Because when you're, I mean, I felt like most kids at that age didn't really think about you know, different parts of the world, different cultures, like their own community and the different people that make it up. But um, as a minority, you kind of have to think about those things because it's who you are. Right. And so you're sort of prematurely handling all of these difficult topics in your head. And it is confusing. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I just thought of something, you know, I've talked mostly about my two older children, but I remember my youngest he went to he was in kindergarten and he was going to bring a snack to school to share, and I don't know if you've seen the small um, there's their nori the dried seaweed that you can get in a little packet. Yeah, that's yeah. what he brought to his kindergarten class, and they made fun of him. Oh, and he gosh. thought he was bringing this really great snack, oh, sure, because yeah. that's what we would eat at home. And he brought it to his kindergarten class, and it was it didn't really go over well. So you know, little things like that that we wouldn't think twice of now, but looking back, you know, he is 30s, almost 36. So it's, you know, we're going back a little, but I, I remember that he was, um, you know, that was a little bit hurtful. Like you, you're bringing this really great, you know, that's what we ate at home. This is a great snack, right? I'm gonna share this mom. And it was kindergarten. I mean, it was kindergarten in a small community, so. Well, I have so many stories, I mean, I, I, can, I can see this being a, a TV episode where he brings it <laughs> And it's a wonderful learning opportunity for right. every, and, and that's not, and that's totally not what happens. Yeah. It's, you know, they, they, yeah. they just make fun of you for being right. different. Yeah. And it's in, you know, um, the cute little packet, right? And that, you know, you just get to rip it up and you have those little three pieces of nori. Yeah. I think that's something a lot of students of color identify with, uh, having their lunch made fun of or, you know, the food they bring to school, their snack time stuff. Mm-hmm. I know, like, for me, um, I used to bring, like, kebabs to school, mm. which are pretty common in South Asia, just, like, mm. a meat patty, and sometimes my mom would put them in sandwiches, and people would, you know, say really nasty things about them, like, you wouldn't say that about food, um, and it's interesting, because they're so young, like, we were all really young when they would say those kinds of things, so it's hard to process, because... Sometimes kids don't know exactly the impact of what they're saying. Right. I agree. But how are you supposed to feel about it then? Yeah. Should you not feel angry at them? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a hard one. But yeah, that, that really stood out to me. Like, gosh, that was so long ago. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a great experience in kindergarten, but that that memory really sticks out. And we bring we bring it up occasionally, and kindergarten was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I was just, I'm doing the math here. I'm a little bit older than your son, but not a whole lot. And I'm like, that is a, yeah, that was right? a, long, a little while ago. Pam, do you want to talk more about, I guess, what it was like watching your kids kind of, I don't know, go through that process? Do you want to expand on it more? Or do you feel like it's... That, let's see, what else could I share? Um, I think for my, I, honestly, I, I think for my oldest, it was the most difficult. Um, he was older. Um, he, I think he had a really hard time adjusting to living here in the Midwest because it was so different and it wasn't diverse. Um, and he didn't have those diverse friends. I think even as a young adult, um, not having many friends that were non-white, um, that kind of looked like him, I think, I think he continued to have those issues as a young adult. Um, you know, and sometimes I question, did I make, did we make the right decision moving to the Midwest to have our children grow up the country? I, I, you know, I, over the years I have questioned my, you know, my choices of, mm. 
you know, what would that have been if we stayed in the city, right? I, but, you know, I still think it was a good choice, but sometimes I, I worry about that, um, especially with what's going on now in Valpo um, as a, um, a man of color in our community. It's not really that safe for my kid who is an, is an adult, yeah. right? Um, I think those concerns are still there, especially now, especially now. I, I do have those concerns for safety, health, and well-being, which I never thought I would have those concerns living here in Valpo. So you mentioned moving here. Uh, there are a couple things in there I want us to visit. But the first thing you, you mentioned there that it struck me is you have, coming from a place that is diverse mm-hmm. to this place that is, is not. What Everyone has a different idea of what diverse is. What, what was your experience of diverse in the Bay Area? Sure. So that listeners can get some idea of what, there's, what you're talking about. Sure. So, you know, I grew up in Berkeley, California in the 60s. So I went to a school um, in Berkeley where we were all different, you know, Caucasian and Filipino and Asian and African-American. I mean, we were all Latino. We were all in the school together. And so that was diverse. The food was diverse. The, the perspectives on life were diverse. Um, so that's what I grew up in. Um, living in San Francisco, the kids went to a, a co-op preschool, which was also diverse. You know, you're learning about different cultures and you're, you know, once again, you're eating different foods and the different perspectives and just, a, you know, just, you know, humanity, the difference in humanity, humanity going to these schools. Um, you know, when I, I remember, too, one of the things I remember when we moved to the Midwest all the kids knew the Christmas songs and my kids didn't know all the Christmas songs. Right. But it, you know, but, but, you know, they knew about Kwanzaa and, um, (laughs) right. They knew about, you know, Chinese new year and they knew, they knew these other holidays that we didn't really, you know, we had them here in the Midwest, but you know, we didn't celebrate them like we did in California. So, you know, I think that part of diversity, I remember uh, my daughter and I would go to Hula in uh, the Bay Area. And so moving out here, I think we had to go to Chicago to go to Hula, right? So those kinds of things. How do I, how do I keep, how do I still, you know, my kids were little, where do I go? So they still know their cultural background, whether that's, you know, Hula or whatever that might be. And so in the community I lived in, we didn't have any of that, right? So that was, that was hard. That was hard for me. Like, okay, where do I go? Where do I go to get Filipino food? Right? Do I go to Chicago? I, was gonna, I, can't, I can't tell you that now. I can tell you though. I'm sure you can. I can tell you now. <laughs> there is a place, and I've been there, and it's so it's 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 fun. And I'll, I'll go in there, and sometimes they'll talk to me in Tagalog, and then sometimes they'll go in there, and they and they think that they don't think I'm Filipino. It's, so it's very interesting. I'm not quite sure why. Um, fun fact, though. I've yeah. been Americanized. So. When you talk about the, the diversity, all the different the different races and ethnicities there, what what would you guess in your classes when you were growing up in the in the Bay Area? What percentage were white? Yeah, as a little kid, as a little kid, I don't quite remember, but I will share. Um, when I was in high school, I was part of a part of an experiment in a community outside of San Francisco. And um, they they bust children into this high school. Yeah. So I was a part of a very small group of Filipinos at this high school. In fact, there were only two Filipinas, myself and a friend. She turned into my friend, and they would always get us mixed up because they always thought we looked, you know, we looked like oh. they would call me Kathy. They would call her Pam. And so that was that was another thing that was kind of a challenge for me as a teenager that I got mistaken for my friend and she's still my friend after you know 50 plus years um but that was that was a hard one because we were we were mixed um but there were very very few Filipinos at the school so so I guess I've been dealing with this kind of stuff for a number of years as we're chatting about this the the reason I ask is I I understand that I've been at gatherings here in Valparaiso where, where people have addressed a, a large room full of people and they will say, like, look at the diversity that's in the room and I'll, I'll take a look around and say, I'm, 
we all kind of look like I do. I'm not sure what you're talking about. And the assumption that many white folks have is about 10% minorities constitutes diverse. And that's not what you experienced growing up in the Bay Area. No, definitely not. Um, and that's that certainly is not the breakdown of, of ethnicity in the United States right now. Right. I definitely agree with that. I think I bring diversity to every event I attend. One other thing I, I, that you mentioned, uh, I, I said there were two things. The, the second thing is you, you mentioned um, your, your adult son who is, um, lives in, in Valparaiso and the concern you have for his safety. What specific things, because a lot of listeners would probably say, what on earth could happen in Valparaiso to a minority? It's such a safe place. I think they're targeted. I think if you look different, I think um, I think we have people in this community that are racist against people that look like my son and myself. And I think even in these times where you know a lot's been happening in the last five years, um, and even with COVID, um, there is a lot of hate towards people of color. Um, I recall when, um, you know, they were talking about all the Asian hate. My daughter called me from the Bay Area and she said, Mom, you know, are you safe in your neighborhood? I said, oh, I'm really mm. safe in my neighborhood. I know all my neighbors. It's okay. But she was she was concerned yeah. for my safety. And I, and I, and I, I do, I, you know, I, th- I think there's um, profiling here in Valpo um, for some of our um, young men of color. Um, you know, I've lived here since 06. Um, so I've been in the community a while. I live and work in the community. Um, but there has there ha- there have been those issues for as long as I've lived here. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Especially with the COVID issue, it's become only so much worse. I know that across the country, hate crimes against Asian Americans have spiked, but I think one number to really represent how how bad it is um, comes from the Center for a Study of Hate and Extremism. Uh, They published a report documenting changes in hate crime patterns in 2020. Um, And all Asian or anti-Asian hate crimes rose by 149 percent in 2020, while all hate crimes in general um, dropped by seven percent. Wow. So, I mean, even at school, like people are very ignorant about the anti-Asian sentiment that's been happening in the past year, and a lot of people think it's just funny to partake in that bias and racism so it's a definitive fear to have for your children yeah um i was just thinking um i have a great job but i know that um even as an adult working in the community you also hear things i know that i was um someone in my work community um said that i had only gotten a position because I was Oriental. And so that got back to me. I thought, oh, my goodness, right? And so, you know, when you hear that, you think, where, where do I live, right? Um, you know, and so that comes up occasionally as well. So this has been a lifelong process yeah. for me, I would say. And I laugh about it, but I think, um, you know, as an, as an Asian woman, we... You know, we're like that model minority, right? We, we go along with things. We don't really speak out, right? And so um, I'm working through that process as well of speaking out more because it, this has been a lifelong yeah. process for me. Now, you and I had been talking about this. Do you want to bring that up at this? The model minority? Yeah, the infantilization. Yeah, I think, I think one issue that is really a part of what makes anti-Asian sentiment in America so bad is the infantilization of East Asian women, which is where 
a lot of East Asian women are seen as demure, immature, you know, unable to act with a lot of intelligence. They're just seen as these, like, very small, powerless people. And part of that is expecting East Asian women to be quiet all the time and very compliant, as you said. Um, I think that's a, a, a stark difference from one of our previous episodes where we discussed how a lot of times, like, African-American women are treated the opposite, where they're treated as very aggressive and loud and, um, like, adult... I don't know what was the word. The, the term you had mentioned, we didn't we didn't like it, but it was the best one we could find was adultification. Adultification yeah. of African American women compared to the infantilization of East Asian women. Right. Just shows how hard it is to really express yourself as a person of color in America. Right. <laughs> well, and and you know, even thinking about the the generation that I grew up in, you know, um, I grew up in the '60s and the '70s, so thinking about being perceived as that that you know petite Asian woman that was demure and was quiet and you know was not assertive in any way and it, so it's that that cultural thing too um, as part of that I think so yeah and it's it's a cultural expectation that white Americans have of you I mean, correct there's, there's definitely, oh, definitely. There's definitely you've got your own culture you come from but it's a, a cultural expectation that white Americans have created. Right. For you, that you're going to act this way. Right. Um, well, and even thinking about, you know, the immigrants that come over, like my grandmother that came over and wants to fit in. So, you know, they have that, that cultural background. And then they're coming to the U.S. where um, it's it's a different perspective of what that might be. Mm-hmm. And so trying to even fit in um, for my grandmother or for my mother or even for me. Right. And so those cultural differences we you know our children probably have that but they've grown up in america so it's there's some i think there's so much conflict there you are listening to val poc plus a program about uh, bias and uh, bias related incidents primarily around people of color but not always um, these are issues that affect us in the United States as a whole, but uh, specifically we're talking about how they affect the Valparaiso, Indiana community. Uh, you can find us on our Anchor page at anchor.fm slash V-A-L-P-O-C. Uh, we are recording from WVLP-FM in Valparaiso, 103.1 FM. Uh, I am Tim Leitsky. I am one of the hosts. I'm the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church here in Valparaiso. And my co-host is... This is Nora Arfin. I'm a senior at Valparaiso High School. And Nora and I are joined today by Pam Saylor, who is... What, what, what is, what is your, your, your... You're here as an East Asian person discussing East Asian bias, but what is, what is your job here in the, in the region? What do you do? Oh, sure. Um, I am the social work program director at Purdue University Northwest. Okay. You've mentioned in preparing for today, um, watching the diversity in the campus change over time. Um, How has that, what has been the effect of that? What does that look like? Um, I I think for me, it's been great. Um, Purdue University Northwest, we merged with Hammond and Westville. Um, so our Westville campus, um, our, our demographics of our students in the Westville area, Laporte, Porter, um, that area, mostly Caucasian um, mm-hmm. students. But then since my program is on, is on one campus, many of our students are coming from Hammond, the Hammond campus. And so we're, I'm seeing my, my class has, um, you know, we have a, a lot of different students with different backgrounds so we we have more diversity and and, uh, one of the one of the assignments I give to the students at the beginning of the year in this intro to social work class is to find a news article or something and post it on Padlet and tell me why Mm -hmm. you've chosen this why is this important to know and and how do we as social works address these issues and I and recall one of the students um, posted about the diversity of their teachers and um, those leaders and how important that was 
for them to be in like in a classroom and and part of that was I thought because I've had this experience before but then the students talked about it in class how important that was to see someone that looked like them um, I taught at Valparaiso University for one year my first year teaching and I, I recall a, a, a young student that came into a meeting and um, she got tears in her eyes because she saw one that saw a, a, a professor that looked like her, mm. and that was that was a you know that was a, a special moment for her because you know in in the department where I was teaching I was the I was you know Filipina American and and I looked like her and so in my class at Purdue Northwest um, it's it's wonderful to see this group of young students talking about how important it is to have diverse teachers, whether it's in elementary school, high school, the, the, the you know, the college setting, mm -hmm. that's really important. And I even think for myself, as an Asian woman, I know when I saw Asian women scholars, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so inspired by these women, because I don't really see that, um, you know, in my in you know in higher ed even in higher ed we don't have as many yeah. asian women scholars i mean you think about faculty of color but then also thinking about asian women faculty and so that's a you know another topic that's quite interesting as well Nora, you had brought up i mean cut off your idea but you had, you had brought up the, the matter of having difficulty talking about race when the teachers don't look like you do. I don't know, is there, did, did I actually say everything there was for you to say about that? Or is there more you want to Are you referring to like, in general as a minority student, talking about your experience with white teachers? I think it, the, way, the way you had put it to me is, you, is students of color have a hard time talking about race when they don't have a teacher or authority oh. figure who looks like they right. do. Yeah. I think that a lot of students of color need to have candid discussions with people about their identity and the struggles they experience, um, obviously only if they want to, just because it's so hard to understand who you are and where you stand in your student body on your own internally. Like it really helps to just talk it through with others and, you know, ha be heard and have someone listen to you. Doing that with a, you know, white administrator, a white teacher, is really different than, you know, talking to someone who looks like you because they can't relate to you. Um, they can't necessarily, you know, give you a way to think about it or tell you how to get past your struggles. And it just doesn't, it feels a bit awkward almost, you know, talking to, someone who can't really understand where you're coming from about this because you're in a vulnerable place. Yeah, I totally agree because I, you know, I see that in my freshmen. Um, and so trying to create that safe place for students to have that discussion. So, you know, for this particular class, we're going to, you know, it's something we're going to talk about in every class, just have a few minutes in every class um, so students can have that space to talk. Um, and so I, that's one of my goals, actually, this semester is, is to talk about diversity in every class that we have. And it, it's something it struck me when you mentioned that the other day, Nor, because it's some, as a white person who is more often than not in a position of authority wherever I go, I like to think anyone can talk to me. And it's, well, about this, well, yes, but it's still not going to be the same as talking to somebody who who's had the experience and I just, I just kind of need to deal with that. That's my own problem that I can't get over that. Um, but that's, I, th I think is something I know it's, it struck me as that's, uh, that's a, that's a place where I can't help other than get out of the way and let somebody else, let somebody else help. I think you find some, just some inherent comfort in speaking to an adult that looks like you, honestly, <clears throat> there's just, something about it that I can't really articulate, but it just makes everything feel more valid about what you're mm -hmm. saying. I will agree with that too, um, because I have since connected with Asian women scholars. So in my role as a professor, 
having those people that I can chat with about issues concerning Asian women scholars. So um, they, they get me, right? Those cultural differences, they, they get me, right? So very similar to what you're saying. Well, our program focuses specifically on things that happen in, in Valparaiso schools, and I wonder if this is a time to, to listen to a story we've, that came out of the Valparaiso schools. These were recorded uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I do not believe this story has aired before. So we'll, it's a fairly long clip. We'll probably listen to it in a couple of pieces. So here we go. once a month she comes to me saying something that upsets her about a comment that someone makes towards her um, and that that deeply affects me um, it's hard for me to comfort her knowing that I'm white and I would never understand the position that she's in um, people always make comments such as open your eyes more or can you even see and I think that's something that people are being very blatantly ignorant about and I think that there needs to be a change in what people say to people why do they say that? I don't think they understand. I, I hope that they don't understand how much it affects her. Because I think it deeply... I mean, why, why do they say open your eyes more? Because she's Asian. Okay. And there's been things that are... What, what are the kind of things get said? There's a word that I'm not going to say, but... In, it's a word that is very deep rooted in their history um, that she's been called before. And it's obviously very inappropriate. And I think more people should be aware not to use that word in any circumstance, no matter what. She's been called that directly to her face. She's been called that over social media. And I absolutely think that is not okay. Forgive my ignorance. What's the word? What does it start with? A C. I'd like prefer not to say it. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah. Um, okay. Something that they used to call them when they were. Okay. I I I've got it. I, 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 no, that's fine. That's fine. I, I understand. I I agree. You know. I mean, white people need to be a little careful. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's helpful. I mean, it took me a while because. No. Yeah. I understand that absolutely. I didn't. I had never heard of the word until she came to me and talked to me about it. And that's obviously because I'm white and I'm not, and I don't know everything. And I want to learn about her culture and I want to respect her culture as much as I can. I didn't really know what the word meant until she described to me what that meant. And obviously the people were trying to say it to hurt her feelings and make her upset, so. How does that affect her? <clears throat> I think it makes her really sad and I think it makes her ashamed of who she is. And that's something that we definitely should discourage in people because that is not what we are here for yeah. under any circumstance. Can you think of a specific time, like that you, like she told you about it or you witnessed mm -hmm. it? Uh, we were out to dinner and she just kind of mentioned it and we were really close and just tears just started rushing down her face and it's like, you know, and she's, she's not really a vulnerable person but she's always been pretty vulnerable around me and seeing her that upset about something makes me understand that this really affects her. So, and that was probably only like a month ago. And that, you know, that stuff has started it. I mean, I've known her since I, we were in elementary school, and it's been the same way ever since then. So. You said this happens to her like once a month? I'd say so. Mm -hmm. Do you think anybody like is aware of it? Not that like, we kind of like a teacher I would say, it, I would say some people know that they're hurting her and do it because of that. I think, I think it's not only sometimes that people don't even know what they're saying, although that is an issue. I think sometimes people just do it to do it. And I think that's crazy, sad. Do, do other people hear it? Sometimes. Sometimes. And I think usually... Okay. We've cut, kind of, kind of cut it in half, so that's one half of it there. Um, that's, there there's a lot in there listening to that, that piece. Um, it, it's interesting to me that the storyteller identifies these two potential motives. Some people say it because they know it'll hurt her. Some people do it just to do it. Um, I know I know my feelings about both of those things, but I'm wondering, I'm the white guy on the podcast, so I'm wondering what, between the high schooler and the, the parent of former high schoolers here in town, what that's 
What was that story like listening to it? You know, I, I, I recall vaguely some of stories very similar to that. And sometimes kids want to be funny. They want to fit in with their other friends. This little girl looks different. I can make fun of her and she's not going to do anything. Right. So they can do that and get away with it because because of whoever they're hanging out with. It's maybe the cool thing to, to do is to make fun of this little boy or girl. But I, I but I do. I vaguely recall things like that happening to my kids because hmm. um, they were different. Right. Um, like that story should be shocking. But in the context of our high school, it's really not. It's something that is really normal for people to make comments like that, especially in front of their friends or in front of, like, large groups of other people because it's considered funny. Mm -hmm. And it's also, like, if that Asian person gets offended, they're being really sensitive, they're making a big deal right. out of it. They're oh, very right. liberal. Definitely. So it's, like, easy for people to deny other people their like humanity that way honestly just like make you seem like you're not a real person with real emotions yeah and and even thinking about goodness my kids have been out of the school system for a while now and this we still have these issues today is sad to me it's so sad to me i i know i said in the in the previous one in the previous episode we did about anti-black racism um, what's alarmed me in, in, in all the stories that we're going to listen to is how little has changed. I, I graduated from high school 24 years ago. 20, yeah, 24 years ago. I've lost track. Uh, and went, went in a different state and all that good stuff, so I'm, I'm not a product of Valparaiso schools. But, but hearing things like this, I'm like, oh, my God, that, those were dumb things that happened when I was in school, and they were supposed to have been stopped. I mean, I, I can remember the first time a, a kid pulled on the corner of his eyes and said, "Hey, I'm I'm Chinese," and and my confusion that I don't I don't get it, and but everybody else thought it was this was hilarious that he was doing this, and I thought that's the sort of thing that shouldn't be happening, and yet here you've got a high schooler saying, you know, "How do you see with your eyes like that?" And but, and I feel like people really disrespect the individual cultural values of Asian students. Like, I feel like East Asian students at our school are all looped into one big, like, oriental slash exotic group. Because I remember in middle school, a teacher who's been in the VCS system for at least 15, 20 years told a Vietnamese student to get back on the Silk Road because he wasn't sitting at his seat. Oh, and dear. And everyone just laughed, and he laughed too, and I, or they laughed too, and I, I think that's sometimes really the only way students of color can deal with it because it's like less painful and more convenient to just laugh it off. That insult doesn't even make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's showing his age. Uh, too. Yeah, Other well, I mean, math. seriously, that's. And you know, that's the sad part that there is there aren't any consequences for your teacher that is, you know, is saying these things, um, there, there are no repercussions for that. And, and so, you know, then, so students then will, you know, my teacher was saying things. And so they, they continue to do that because there are no consequences yeah. and it's hurtful. It's so hurtful. And I think that's why I'm saddened by that. Yeah. Right. It's such a deep rooted hate against East Asians. I feel it's just, I feel like there's so many layers to it and mm -hmm. people have internalized it so much. Like on the same token, I've had Asian or not sorry, Asian teachers, but white teachers who'd say I had Chinese for lunch and you never know what cat and dog does to your stomach. Or, yeah. you know, they say that about Filipinos too. Yeah. Even I remember I was at Valparaiso university and let me know if I'm getting into too much of a rant here, but this was when um, there was an orchestra group of students who came from China um, who, were who had a music performance coming up. And me and this one girl from the orchestra group were um, asking this woman if we could pet her dog. 
And before she says yes, she turns to that Chinese girl and she asks her, are you from China? Where are you from? And that girl says, yes, I'm from China. I'm traveling with the student group. And then that woman like kind of clutches her dog and says, don't they eat dogs in China? Like, don't, don't they eat dogs oh, where you're from? Oh my goodness. And so it's just like such an internalized racism to the point where people don't even realize how absurd this thing they're saying are. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't clutch a, a pig or a cow, <laughs> and, and so don't you Americans, chicken, don't like. you Americans eat cows? <laughs> yes, but like, like right now, no. <laughs> you mentioned the, the lack of consequences, Pam, and I, I think that that the second half of the clip gets into a specific incident with a teacher and the lack of consequences. So I want us to listen to that, and then we can can keep going. I'm just gonna I think that's actually the main issue that we need to tackle is get people to say something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Get them to stand up for it, even if it makes them uncomfortable. And I've luckily never been in a situation where I was by her and that happened, but if it did, no question, I'd jump on it yeah. and say something. So. How would you describe the role of like teachers or admin in relation to like stuff like that? Happening? So she, actually she has gone to the office about it. So actually something has happened within the school with her. And nothing really happened. So, I mean, surprise. Um, so she was obviously very upset about that. Um, was this a name-calling thing? Yes. Mm -hmm. And the teacher was involved with it, so. What, what, she reported it to the teacher and the teacher saw it? Yes, she reported it to the administration and she sat down and they had like a, a, a conference and everything happened and nothing really ever happened. It's just kind of put on the back burner, which is really unfortunate. Usually say, like, we'll look into it. And then, and then nothing ever happens. <coughs> so. Do you remember who any of these people, like any specific administrators or teachers? Yeah. Am I allowed to say? Yeah. Sure. I mean, we're, we're, we're not, we understand We'll that probably cut this part where George is assuring her that she can talk. To the teacher or to the school, that that may come back on her, and we're not going to do that. Okay. Yeah, we, I just want to we, make sure that... No, I, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, look, you don't know us, but we come fairly well recommended. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can say, trust us, is that okay. we're, we're, we need to know mm -hmm. what's going on, but we're not going to put it out there in a way that outs okay, somebody. Okay, good. So I know it was a male history teacher that started calling her a commie. I don't know. I don't so, know it's be. I was so I was so angry, and I was one who was like, "You're telling the administration right now, or I'll do it myself." <laughs> Which probably, I know it's not my position to say anything, but that there is such an issue with that, and I, I just can't. Ugh. Watching her having to be upset in a school setting where you're supposed to be learning is the thing that even makes me more upset. And she went to them, and nothing ever happened. She went to who? To the administration? I'm not exactly sure who she went to in the administration. She didn't really tell me mm -hmm. any of that information, but I know that she definitely did go to people, and they're kind of like, okay, like we'll look into it. Like, mm -hmm. But as far as I'm concerned, nothing. Do you, do you think the comment was made because of her national origin or because of her political beliefs? Absolutely because of her origin. No question. Like Chinese communist or yes. something like that? Yes. So, as somebody who's been called a commie because I uh, lean extremely hard one direction politically, um, I, I've never been called that because it was assumed of my ethnicity. But <laughs> hearing that story, I understand where George was, why he asked that question, but it's like, oh, could, they, could you just have been liberal? But no, I mean, I, part of it, I have such a low expectation of other human beings, I just assumed, yes, this was clearly a racial insult. Um, and when we were listening to that story, um, I know both everybody in the room here with us while we're listening is reacting. We're all shifting nervously and <laughs> suppressing laughs and saying, oh my, I know what that is. Um, please, this is, this is not my story and I'm not a student there. What's, talk, let's share about this. What's going on here? I should be shocked, but again, I'm not that shocked. Like, I've had teachers myself who, I told you guys some of it, but like I've had teachers who say really like out of pocket things like that, and it it should be unacceptable at the school, 
honestly, it's not. You, that student went to the administration, they told them what happened, and they were told, we're sorry that happened, we'll try to deal with it, and they were never uh, reached out to again. And I think this is why, like, so many East Asian students, I think, feel, like, invisible in our school. Like, you, you're already kind of blending all of their cultures together and not giving them any individuality. And then on top of that, when, when something happens to them that's, like, so hurtful, no one's really willing to care or listen when they should be. It's upsetting. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was telling when, when the person in the story said, usually, usually they say, we'll look into it. Nor you just started nodding along like that's that's the standard that. phrase you've heard it yeah. yeah yeah that's that's the and that's a I mean to me that's a typical bureaucratic don't feel like dealing with this but you use that in situations that don't matter to you right and clearly this this racial incident did not matter um, that, that's so disheartening that is yeah and it just I think it contributes to the overall confusion students have about their identity because it's like it makes it that much more work to figure out who you are when everyone else is trying to put you into these boxes for you and and i think to be dismissive about your concerns mm -hmm. right um because we should as as teachers and administrators in the school setting we should be listening to you and nurturing you and that doesn't sound like nurturing to me um, when you're being dismissive yeah. of your students. I know in, in looking at this, I mean, I, I'm not aware of the entire situation here. I know, can say if any consequences happened for this teacher, the student certainly never learned anything about them. But I, you can't hear Nora rolling her eyes. But um, it's the idea that I, basically is I think the assumption is there were no consequences for this. In my opinion, if that student came back one more time or if the administrator was really bothered by that report, they probably either sent that history teacher an email saying we got this complaint about you making this comment or they went down there and talked to them about it and then that teacher would, you know, I, I, I'm betting that teacher would have said something in class or like, oh, I got to be careful about what I say or I can't say stuff like this because I've, I've had teachers who like, get in trouble for what they say and then they're like oh well now i ought to censor what i say i can't say anything it's the, like the, it's all a joke or, yeah, well, or, or that they're the victim yeah yeah it's my right. it's i'm the victim for having made this racially charged comment yeah um, assuming it gets that far yeah what sorts of things are needed in the school system Based on everything we've talked about, and this, in light of this sort of incident, um, obviously you want more than oh, we'll look into it, and nothing happens. But what, what, what is the goal here? What, what would be helpful in the situation? Is there any, is there any kind of training for our students here in in Valpo? Training on how to work with your diverse students. If you're, no, is there, I mean, I don't really know. Um, is there any, you know. You mean training for teachers? Yeah. work with diverse students? I don't think we can provide a definitive answer on that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. something that's been in a little bit of like a planning. For like, an, I think for a number of years, right? For a number of years, right? You know, I, I think that's so important to have to all be, all be on the same page. You know, you're here to nurture and educate these young minds so they can go out in the world and be productive young adults, right? And so yeah. when, you, when, you're, when you're treating your, your students like that, I'm, you know, once again, I'm disheartened. Like, what are, what are we doing in the schools? Having, do, you know, more teachers of color, right? Creating that safe place for your students to, to discuss those issues, right? Um, creating that safe space where they're, you know, you're talking about this at an early age. I know we're talking about it a lot in the high school system. 
but what are we talking about in elementary school and middle school? Are we having these discussions um, in, in, you know, in primary grades, in middle school, right? Are, I mean, are we? I don't know. I don't think it happens. I don't think it happens enough. I mean, the fact that kids in elementary school are like pulling back their eyes and making fun of East Asian people's looks is enough on its own to say that like we need to show students just simply how to be empathetic towards people who don't look like you at the most simple level. Like that should be something kids understand naturally, but it's not. Kids are mean, like, and you yeah. have to do something about it. Right. They're not just going to become really sweet, unbiased people come sixth grade. Right, right. I mean, even to have that as a strategic goal for the school corporation, yeah. right? What strikes me that we want, there needs to be action taken, not, not simply, you can't just put out there that, you know, Valparaiso Community Schools are an equal opportunity employer. We don't, but you have to actually make an effort right. to to address the issue, and and it's it's for the sake of kids who are facing discrimination every day. It's not enough to say, you know, I, I remember when I was in in school, teachers would complain, "Oh, we're being forced to teach conflict resolution. What am I, this person's mother?" And I, I, on the one hand, understood because they got into teaching to teach their subject, not to teach conflict resolution. But at the same time, when you're packed into the school for seven hours a day, you're and with kids. you're 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 in, I mean, and if you're you're a kid, this is where you spend the bulk of your life. And, and my God, yeah, yeah, you do actually need to know how to get along. Community doesn't just happen. Right, and I think building that community, you know, it seems like we don't have that community of students that can all work together, collaborate. You know, we have we have these continued issues with these with the students. And it, it, it seems like what you're talking about, Nora, those are very similar issues to what my kids were going through many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so those need to be addressed in, in, in our community and a plan. And I, I know that there are there are community members that are very interested in it and, and I'm hoping their voices are heard. Um, but I think it's leadership's role to like, yeah, this is the plan. How do we move forward? How do we get input to create that community, that safe community for our students to be embraced by everybody else, but also to learn, right? Um, I, I think that's so, that's so important, especially in these times. I think for me, with the pandemic, um, engaging my students and creating that safe place was so important for me for learning, right? And yeah. what are we what are we learning in our community? Right, we're learning that that's okay to say, hey, you know, yeah, right. Yeah, and I I want to echo what Pastor Tim said about how you can change your principles, you can change your aspirations for the school corporation, but you have to take action about the cur the hurt that's currently happening to students, because it's on a day by day basis that we're hearing students are being called slurs. You know, and it's just you have to do something about it now. You can't just simply change your goals and yeah, yeah, yeah. because it continu it continues. Yeah. Well, Pam, thank you for being with us as as our guest. You you get to have the first last word. Is there anything you want to make sure that our listeners know, hear, internalize, or left thinking about? You know, I, I, thank you for um letting me share my stories because you know sometimes you think your stories are just your stories but listening to nor listening to the recorded piece there are similar stories that i think we need to bring more awareness of um and then working towards that solution together i think is really important um but share i think being able to share in a safe place i'm all about having that safe place and then collaborating to you know figure out what we want to do well, thank you very much thank for that you for and for having being me. here. Nor is there anything you want to say? Um, <laughs> I think that was, I mean, I think we honestly talked about it all. 
we invite you, the listener, to take action. You can join the local Allies Against Racism group, which has over 100 members. You can also share your own experience or story of discrimination through the Advisory Human Relation Council's anonymous form on their Facebook page. And finally, you can continue to tune into this show to gain a better understanding of our youth in Valpo, the issues they face, and why their stories matter. This has been Val POC Plus, recorded at WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. Comment on this broadcast, share your experiences on the Valpo schools, or reach out to Allies Against Racism. Send an email to contact at alliesagainstracism.org. That email is contact at alliesagainstracism.org.